Hi guys, today I have a repeat guest from 2017 and if I remember correctly, the last I checked we were in that last chat well over 100,000 views so turns out that he was, he's been one of my uh, most popular uh, guests and so uh, he was kind enough to return on the show. Joran Adamson, how are you doing sir? I'm fine, Gad, and I'm very happy to be here again. Thank you so much. Oh, cheers. Uh, for the people who don't know you, I just prepared a little brief bio, so let me uh, mention it very quickly. You are an associate professor in sociology at University West in Sweden. Your uh, PhD is from London School of Economics, a great school. Uh, several books that you've written, uh, Populist Parties and the Failures of the Political Elites, The Rise of the Austrian Freedom Party in 2016, and then the book that we discussed most the last time you were here in 2017, The Trojan Horse, A Leftist Critique of Multiculturalism in the West, and your latest book that just came out uh, this year, Masochist Nationalism, Multicultural Self-Hatred and the Infatuation with the Exotic. It is based in part on George Orwell's notes on nationalism. So what I thought we would do, uh, Joran, is begin with this latest book there's all kinds of connections between your book and other stuff that i'd like to talk about but why don't you give us first a summary of the central thesis of that book well it actually goes back to as you mentioned george orwell he, he wrote a he wrote a very interesting essay it came out in 1945 and it's called notes on nationalism and i read it and i was shocked because in this in this essay there were so many interesting ideas but I'd like, just like to bring you two of the most inter interesting ideas in this, in this essay. First, he talks about negative nationalism. And negative nationalism is just like the nationalism we, we uh, you know, the classic nationalism. And Orwell talks about, he, he, says this, he, talks, he refers to it as, as a positive nationalism. But negative nationalism is the exact opposite. It is someone who is as uh, interested in his own culture and uh, knows a lot about it, but not in order to, to uh, idealize it, but in order to criticize it, to, to compare it not favorably to other cultures, but unfavorably to other cultures or religions or uh, um, traditions. Uh, so that's that's a very interesting idea, and I haven't I haven't uh, heard about it that much. Uh, so so uh, so I think Orwell's idea about negative nationalism is highly interesting. And then also in this notes on nationalism, he talks about another idea, namely transferred nationalism, and that that is actually even more interesting, I think. And transferred nationalism is like an exported nationalism. It is someone, and I think you can generally think about a multiculturalist here to have an idea about what a transferred nationalist is about. It's about someone who is as interested in, who is, or, or rather, who is a nationalist, but not here, not for on part of his own culture and nation, but on part of a culture or nation overseas. Right. You know, that's, that's, the, uh, that's the transferred nationalism. Or he has, in a sense, he has exported his sentimental, uh, nationalistic, romantic ideas you know, he has sunk his personality, as Orwell talks about. It's a very nice expression. He has sunk his personality, not in Britain or in Sweden or in Denmark, but maybe in Syria or in Mongolia or, you know, any culture on the other side of the, of the planet, overseas, so to speak. So uh, Orwell says that the, the, the interesting thing is here, according to Orwell, is that uh, a, a classic nationalist and a transferred nationalist, they have so many things in common, and the only difference he would uh, all claims is geographic. You know, they are both 
sentimental. They are both romantic. They, are, they both have a pessimistic worldview. But but the only difference is that one is a uh, is like idealizing his own nation. But the, the, the transferred nationalist is idealizing a nation overseas. So that's very interesting. Difference. So let me link here uh, as I was uh, reading, uh, perusing quickly through through uh, at least the intro of your book. Uh, I haven't yeah. had a chance to fully read it yet, but I will. Uh, I try to draw links with some other folks who've written about what struck me as things that are very relevant to your book. Uh, I can certainly yes. start with my own uh, most recent book where I talk about progressive self-flagellation, right? So for, me to, so for me to truly be pious in the progressive calculus, I must look inwards and demonstrate how bad I am. So instead of original yes. sin in a Christian sense, there is the original sin of being born in the West, of maybe having white skin and so yeah. on. So there's that. Yes. Uh, the other ones that I pulled out, and then I'll mention them all, and then you tell me how they link to your thesis and how they may yes. be different potentially. There, right. And I, when I saw you talking about the infatuation of the exotic, it reminded me of something that I've... Uh, uh, cited before, so Jean-Jacques Rousseau's noble savage, right? You are fetishizing, yes. you know, the other. So it's contrary to being racist, uh, contrary to being to otherizing someone. They are yes. exotic. They are noble. They are noble people of color, whereas yes. uh, us whites are evil and tainted, and so on. Uh, yes. Bertrand Russell had a great, and I actually cite this in the Parasitic Mind. He had a wonderful. Uh, essay on the superior virtue of the oppressed. And yeah. then finally, Pascal uh, Bruckner, I don't know if you know this uh, gentleman, he has a book titled, it seems to me very relevant to your book, The Tyranny yes. of Guilt, an essay on Western masochism. Exactly. So how do you link all these to, to your thesis? Well, I think you, you're like uh, hitting the nail on all aspects here, Gad. And, and, and I think the Rousseau on the idealization of uh, things overseas and, and the, the primitivism among Western intellectuals is extremely interesting. And and my, I mean, you, you can ask yourself, why are they going on like this? Yes. Why can't they be? Why can't they be at least a little bit content about all the the virtues and all the things that they have been given by virtue or by virtue of being born in Canada or in Sweden? Why are they going on? Uh, you know, attacking everything that. People are basically escaping and and, 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 and and risking their lives to obtain. It doesn't somehow make sense. And 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 my, I don't know, any, any guess is good as another, but I think that one of the reasons why they go on like this, uh, harassing or flogging their backs like you also talk about in your brilliant book, is, is because they somehow, it's like they somehow are, ashamed of all the privileges that they have and they want they want to find somehow a way out of this out of the guilt of being privileged out of the guilt of having so many fortunes and having so many privileges and a, a much better life than, than people for instance in Yemen or people in uh, you know Lebanon today for instance so, so let me I, let me stop you here so yeah, so could it yeah. be so to build on what you just said could yeah. it be that I'm speaking now as the guilt-ridden Westerner, the prototype of the Westerner, not not as Gatsat. Uh, yeah, yeah. Because I am born with a greater upper hand by virtue of me being in a first world country that has yeah. rules and laws and opportunities, yes. th there, is a, there is a narrative that comes partly from social constructivism, partly from cultural relativism, uh, which are idea pathogens that I discuss in the parasitic mind, that basically yes. says that if you and I are don't have equality of outcomes, 
it could only be due because I benefited from something along the way or, you know, I oppressed you along the way. Yes. In other words, there is no possibility. Lionel Messi couldn't be a better soccer player because he's innately born biologically as a better player than Joran could ever hope to be. It must be yeah, because he got an unfair advantage. His mother hugged him too much. She didn't hug him enough. <laughs> so then the Western yeah. mind thinks as follows. I have advantages that the Yemeni doesn't have. Therefore, it must have been gotten in an inappropriate manner. Therefore, I must apologize for it. Does that make sense? Yeah, that's, that's very true. And I, and I appreciate your, your reference to football. I happen to know that you used to be a very good football player. <laughs> Thank you, sir. No, I, I, think, I think that's part of it. It's like it's, like it's a zero-sum game. If Lionel Messi is a good football player, it's, it's somehow as if he, he took my ability to be a good football player away from me. He stole it from me. So I have the reason to be envious and I have a reason to be, to be angry with Lionel Messi. Or, you know, the best tennis player in the world. I can't watch them and enjoy it. I watch them and I hate them because they stole my, my, my Wimbledon title from me. You know? and so, so we are witnessing a completely new way of, of dealing with, with uh, I shouldn't call it hierarchies, but, but maybe the fact that we are, we are good at some things, we are good at writing books, and we are not so good at other things. But it's like everything is infused with, with guilt, or, and from the other side, everything is infused with, with, with envy and aggression and, and, and anger and frustration. So it's like the whole identity politics, which is a huge idea, you know, the multicultural entourage. It's like, it's like creating a world which is a, a nightmare from, from, from hundreds of angles. So, so, so the simple thing is watching, some, watching a theater play or watching you know, a great movie or watching tennis players, it is no longer filled with pleasure, but, but envy. And there's another thing here I think is very interesting, namely the fact that, that if, if it's also part of the whole guilt thing, if Sweden is a, is a prosperous country and Yemen is not a prosperous country, it is, it is not, you can't see it like the old socialists and left-wingers did, as if, you know, there are structures and there are historical, you know, circumstances here. Uh, that, that made Sweden a good country, and anybody who would go to Sweden would eventually be part of it. But it, it has to do with individuals. So uh, the fact that Sweden is a prosperous country means that any Swede is is better, and people in Yemen or people in Ethiopia or people in, in Lebanon these days are, are, are worse people. So, so if you say that Sweden is a prosperous country and we are fortunate, the, 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 uh, the, uh, the politically correct, they are pointing fingers at you and they say, oh, so you're a racist. So the left wing is today, this is, I think, a very important point to make. They have forgotten all about structures and systems, you know, the, the, the old classic so, uh, sociologist and left wing uh, explanation that it is not about individuals. We are part of a structure. We are part of a system. And, uh, you know, anybody who, who would be in Sweden for a long time would probably be part of it. So, so it's also... That's also, I think, a reason why why a lot of lot of left wingers are, are entering this self regulation game because they think that they think that if I acknowledge the fact that I'm I'm, I'm privileged, I'm also pointing fingers at every single person in, for instance, uh, uh, Thailand or Vietnam, saying you are you are inferior to me. Right. I'm your superior. So any kind of acknowledgement of of of, of uh, actually of, of good fortune. Is like infused with racism these days. And the, the funny thing, the irony here is that the people who are going on most ferociously about this, with this bullshit, 
are the left wingers. They have forgotten everything about they are not so focused about the individualist explanations for this. If you know what I mean. Sure. This, yeah. So, so this annoys me a lot, actually. So I don't know if in your book, in your latest book, you you went into sort of a historical account of maybe other societies or other time periods that have had this. So maybe let's talk about this. So typically, so in, in, in my case, when I was talking about self-flagellation, I, I linked yes. it, say, to certain uh, religious contexts where, let's say, yes. there are certain flagellants in Catholicism that yes. will you know, self-flagellate because they're not pious enough, because they, yes. they had some sinful thought or did a sinful deed. But I certainly can't remember, and maybe you'll correct me if, if you know better, I can't remember that manifestation of self-flagellation, guilt-ridden self-flagellation at the societal level. And if it has happened in the past, I would think that such a society is now extinct because it seems impossible for a society to flourish and, and, and grow if it has such poor sense of its values, of its beauty, right? I mean, societies yeah. flourish. I mean, think of it another way. An individual yeah. who goes to see a therapist and says, I'm guilt-ridden, I'm self-loathing, I'm full of self-disgust, the therapist yeah. is going to try to work through that. It's not a beautiful thing to be self-loathing as an individual, but yet when we take it to the collectivist level, it is now a beautiful virtue to be self-loathing for the West. So have there yeah. been other societies that have suffered from this malady? And if not, why now the West? Why haven't previous people been as nutty as the West? Well, I don't know. I think what you talked first. You talked about the the uh, the link to to Christianity and and the religious idea of self-regulation. I think that's a very interesting comment because what we're witnessing today are, are left wingers who pretend to have no connection whatsoever to Christianity, and yet I think that their attitude to their own society is like completely saturated with religious emotions, even though they wouldn't recognize it, namely to hate themselves and to, you know, the self-flagellation and self-harassment and self-denigration, etc. So that's a very important point to make. So I think what, what we're witnessing now with the, with the, in many ways is that, that the religion is like somehow creeping back and dressed up as a kind of decent left-wing self-critical attitude, which is, I think, is completely... Uh, uh, being exaggerated and, and, and completely going astray, but on the the other idea about the um, a society where you are just, just simply attacking yourself all the time, uh, I'm not sure I agree with you because I thought thought a lot about that when I wrote my book and 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 about societies and civilizations harassing itself all the time, and I was wondering what is that really about? I mean, on the surface, you could say it it, it seems to be very gentle and very kind and very tolerant and, and excessively tolerant because because I thought this will lead to the downfall of the whole system if you go on like that and you know migration etc and, and, and giving up your own culture giving giving up your own values and and, and, uh, and the modernity and all the rest of it and equality equality between men and women etc but then I thought maybe there's there's a hidden somehow claw here there's there's a hidden agenda going on and I write about that in parts of the book. And it's, it's the fact that if you realize that, I mean, if you think about what, what uh, the West are doing, we talk happily about, uh, for instance, oh, people in Somalia, they are so proud. They are so proud. It's wonderful because Somalis, they are so proud. We are not allowed to say that Norwegians are proud. If you say that, people will say, well, 
you think you're something? You think you're better than other people? No, but you're a white supremacist. If you're, you're white and you say you're proud, that is a telltale sign of white supremacy. White supremacy. So that's dangerous. So, but we are happy to 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 uh, address people cultures overseas like Somalis or people in Syria. They are so proud. They are so they are so proud and happy about their own culture, etc. And then you think some, and I thought that maybe that we do that in order to cover up a pretty dark reality, namely Somalis might not have that much to be proud of. So, so maybe the, the fact that people, we, we think that people should be proud and happy about their own culture, maybe it's a sign of the opposite. And then I thought also that, that I was wondering, what is the, what is the engine behind uh, progress? And the engine behind progress in any society is probably to never to be satisfied with what you're doing in terms of cars, in terms of technology, in terms of, of women's rights, in terms of equality between men and women. And then I thought maybe there is, a, there is, a, there is really some, some hidden agenda going on here, some arrogance that people don't seem to realize. And I don't think Pascal Bruckner, you mentioned his excellent book, I don't think he talks about that, that namely the fact that, that this lack of self-esteem, this self-hatred, maybe somehow is linked to some kind of, I don't know, subconscious uh, uh, awareness or some kind of idea whereby you realize that in order to, pro, in order to uh, excel, in order to move forward, you have to be dissatisfied with what you're doing, right. dissatisfied with your culture, dissatisfied with the, 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 the air quality and dissatisfied with everything. So, so maybe that's, that's something that's going on under the surface here. So that the, the, the lack of this is kind of, you might, you might even put it like this, maybe there's some arrogance under the surface of the lack of arrogance. Right, right. You yeah, know, no, I, mean, I get that. Yeah, that yeah, is a... Under, there is a pride, there is a, there is a self-haughtiness under the lack of it, you know, because you know that, that if, if Swedish people, if we, like a hundred years ago, if we would have walked about saying we're so happy, we're so proud of our society, then you could just sit down right. under a tree and do nothing. So, you know what I mean? So maybe that, 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 that kind of uh, but idea... Your, your, is, uh, your point about the, the arrogance is, is let, let me build on that. So, yeah. uh, so I've I was approached, and I, I mentioned this briefly in, in uh, the Parasitic Mind. I was approached by uh, a group, a women's club uh, at my business school. That apparently they were fans of my work, and they wanted yeah. me to speak at one of their luncheons or events, whatever it was, about okay. how how I had been an ally to women in my career. And I responded in the usual inimitable style of Gatsad. I said, well, I haven't been an ally to women. I am an ally to women, to men, to tall people, to short people, to purple people, to green people. I am an ally to everyone who is worthy of my attention. Uh, Because I argued uh, to the lady in question, who was very lovely and very polite and very respectful, I argued that, isn't it infantilizing and isn't it a form of, of truly coddling? It's insulting that women yes. need me to serve as their allies. And then I reminded the person in question that my dean is a woman. Uh, the chair of my department is a woman. The associate yes. dean is a woman. So yes. why is it that they need the big hero? I mean, isn't that what sexism would be? So exactly. you, you see how all of these progressive ideologies are many things, but they're certainly not internally consistent from a logical perspective, right? Because I'm the, no, it's no. like it's like benevolent sexism. I don't know if you know this concept you're, you're on. So the, the typical type of sexism, we all know it and we, we reject it, right? You, you, know, you, you, you speak inappropriately to a woman, you, you, you harass her and so on. So that's called yes, hostile yes. sexism. But, but 
uh, radical feminists were not happy with just the negative instantiation of sexism. So they then argued that when you are galant, you're chivalrous, you open the door to a woman, if she's being attacked, you go to save her. Those are forms of benevolent sexism. So imagine you're, you're walking on the street and you see three guys raping a woman. So now yes. I have to think, should I just walk away? Would that be more virtuous? Because if yes. I intervene and save her, then I am being sexist. And so you see how these ideological parasitic ideas cause confusion. I mean, it's as simple as that. that, that that's, that's, I think that's like the, the, the highway to, to lesbianism. Because, <laughs> because, because, I mean, what are we guys supposed to do? It's not easy to be a man these days. Right. I mean, if you, try, if you do nothing, they will help you. They will hate you for it. And if you try to help them, they, they hate you for it. So it's, it's, you're damned if you do and damned if you don't. Kafka I, I trap. I, I think, you know what I think, I, I, over the last maybe six months or about, last year I would say, I, I've had a hard time engaging in these discussions. I mean, you, your book goes through so many of them, because I think that the whole discussion has, has recently become so silly and, and unbelievably uh, ridiculous. So I, 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 it's, like, it's like people are, people are talking about like flat earth society and you want to, to find counter arguments to flat earth society to, to the fact that the earth is flat or to the fact that I don't know and, and, and then I just think what am I supposed to do what am I supposed to say so, I, I mean I, I'm an intellectual I try to, to I've written books this is so ridiculous are you unable to to get a lot of uh, folks within Sweden which of course we've talked about this four years ago when you were on the show Sweden is kind yeah. of the the epicenter of patient zero of ostrich parasitic syndrome. So yes, are, are yes. you truly a pariah in Sweden? Have you made any headway since 2017? Have you become uh, more heretical? <laughs> where where are you on the continuum of I hate Joran Adamson? <laughs> well, I, I, the funny thing is that it, it, there are, you know, trends in all kinds of directions. But, but one thing I'd like, it seems to be like there is an increasing polarization. I think we talked about this last time also, that the people who support me, people who are, I mean, are waking up, like, like uh, supporting you and me and, and uh, you know, scientifically minded people, are growing. And, but then it seems like the, the multicultural entourage is somehow shrinking, but it's also getting more ferocious because they are producing increasingly nutty ideas. Yeah. So, uh, you know, it's like the, the uh, there is a very nice expression in English. We don't have it in Swedish, namely that the, 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 the floor is caving in. The floor under the middle ground is caving right. in. So uh, it's like uh, when I remember when I was when I was 20 years old, you could talk to Marxists, you could talk to socialists, you could talk to anybody and you could have like a, and, and very quickly you could reach some kind of you know, uh, common ground. Maybe it was the size of a stamp, but you could meet. You could you could reach some kind of some kind of agreement, or at least you could you understood that you were talking about the same things, even though you disagree. But now it's like the the uh, the left wingers or the identity politicians. They are getting so fanatic and so emotional. So so the the uh, the room for sane discussion is like almost vanishing and. And as you also talk so eloquently about in, in, in your book, in, on many on many on many pages, is that the um, the scientific discussion has been replaced or being, is being replaced by by emotionalism. Yeah. So so uh, so could you could you possibly elaborate a little on that? I mean, I have a lot of lot of uh, citations here, but if you just uh, oh, thank you, you're just, very. Uh, 
Yeah. Very, very kind of you. Uh, so in the yeah. book, I talk about the the false dichotomy between thinking versus feeling, right? The idea being that yeah. there yeah. are many, So, and I call this epistemological dichotomania. Epistemological yeah. dichotomania is the desperate desire to always create mutually exclusive dichotomies, whereas in many cases, yeah. it's simply a false dichotomy. So for example, nature versus nurture is a false dichotomy because most all things of nurture are due to nature, right? We are yes. not socialized the way we are outside of biology. We are socialized in these ways precisely because of biology. So I take this principle and I argue that the idea of thinking versus feeling, are we is are humans a thinking animal or a feeling animal is wrong, but rather yes, what matters is when do you deploy which system in which context? So if I'm walking down a dark alley to get home and I see four young men loitering around suspiciously, my heart yes. will start racing, my blood pressure increases. That fear-based response, which is an emotional yes. response, makes yes. perfect evolutionary sense. On the other hand, if I'm yes. trying to solve a calculus problem, triggering my affective system is not going to help me much. I need to trigger my cognitive system. So when it comes to matters of science, uh, your affective system is irrelevant. So there are contexts for our emotions to carry us, but there are yes. other contexts like in science, where what matters is a, is a deontological commitment to the pursuit of truth unencumbered by your feelings. I don't give a damn what the what your feelings are to some research project that I've done. Not because I'm a mean person, but because when I am tasked with the with the objective of pursuing truth, that's yeah. my task. I don't modulate that in order to not hurt your feelings, right? So, but of course, as yeah. you know, in the social sciences, uh, we can't study sex differences, or actually we could study sex differences as yeah. long as the finding comes out in support of women being superior on whatever we're studying. Yes. If the results come out that men are superior on this memory task, well, then don't, you're a Nazi. Yeah, don't do it. You know, here is one. I just want to bring up uh, one, one quote from your book. You say, the domains that are reserved for the intellect are hijacked by feelings. Yeah. And this is precisely what plagues the universities these days. And I couldn't agree more. I mean, we are both engaged and we are both struggling in the universities. And that's exactly the problem here. That, that I mean, it's like if I go back to 30 years and I would say that, well, I have this equation here and the result is three. Nobody would even consider being abused or humiliated by it. I mean, it's pure science. But now... I mean, it, it hasn't happened yet, but, but uh, it, it, it is not completely, uh, you, you can actually imagine that someone might even be, be abused by a purely scientific discovery because it is not according to their political conviction. No? Oh, Joran, that's already happened. I, in, in yeah? Probably around the time that you came on the show, a few years ago, right. I right. satirically released a clip again, satirically, although I, I deliver it in such a way that if you don't know about my stuff, you actually think I'm being serious. I, yeah, released, yeah. I, re I released a clip where I uh, announced to the world that I had founded a new discipline because I have a mathematics background, uh, oh, yes. social justice mathematics. And so, for example, we need, <laughs> we, we need to ban the term irrational numbers because that marginalizes people with the mental health issues. And so I just went through the whole, you know, bullshit stuff. And, and uh, by the way, uh, I get emails from mathematicians, professional mathematicians who say, you know, you're, like, you're our hero. We sit there and watch these clips and crack up. Well, guess what? A few years later, it is now an actual field 
whereby people argue, usually in ethnic studies and black studies and the women's studies, that mathematics is a form of white supremacy. So that which was satirical three, four years ago in my clip is now being taught in university. So we're already there. It's, 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 I don't know what to say. Do, do, are you familiar with the, the, the British uh, comedy group Monty Python? I am. Yes. I, I, that, that's my standard joke when I talk to friends and when I write comments on Facebook, that we are well beyond John Cleese. You don't need to. You don't need to, to stream any, any Monty Python. You could just open your eyes and read the newspaper. So or, true. Or go to, the, to your job at the university and just, just uh, have lunch with some colleagues and then hear what they are talking about. No, I, I don't know. I don't know. It's like, uh, uh, but, and that's, that also leads over to another, another thing that you mentioned in your book uh, quite a lot. And I also refer to it, namely that, that when emotions are, are when, when science is being pushed, pushed aside by, by emotions, that then, then it's, it's, it's no longer about having the best ideas. It's about, it's about emotions, and then you win the emotion. You win the debates not by being clever, but being heartbroken. Uh, or, or he who emotes louder wins the argument, right? Yes. He who yes. is the greater victim, he who is most yeah. hurt, right? Yes. So there is yes. no way to get at an either axiomatic truth or an empirical no. truth. I no. scream no. and cry. You scream louder. You win. Yes, and that, that is also, if you just go back, if you back the tape like 40 years when I was a teenager, I mean, you were also a teenager, even though you're a bit younger than I am, I'm, I'm, I think. Uh, because, because at the time, when, when, you talked about, when you talked about these things, it was, you need to cut here, because I actually lost completely what I was about to say. Oh, just yeah, keep going, don't worry about it. But it was something very, very important. Bloody hell, this was excellent. Oh, it'll just, come back just, to you. Why don't we keep going? And then if it comes back to you, you could interrupt me. How's no, that? Wait, 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 what did you just say? You said something. It was like, and then I thought, for God's sake, what is, what is it? What did you just say? Uh, just, just, my mind went blank. Just before. Uh, I'm yeah. not, you know what? We don't even need to cut it. This is part of the organic nature of beautiful conversations, right? We're just sitting at a cafe. So don't worry about it. It'll come back to you. Don't worry. Uh, well, actually, I wanted to ask you a personal question. Uh, in your book, yeah. uh, I, I'm sure you've never been asked this question yet. Uh, I love looking at people's dedications in their books. So in my case, hold on, hold on. Don't say anything. Don't give it away. In my book, so my first book, it was to Annie, my hookies. Hookies in Armenian. She's Lebanese-Armenian. Hookies means my my soul, my, okay? Uh, My my second book, it was to Amar and Samra, uh, my eternal companions. It's my two Belgian shepherds. Uh, right. Then I had a book to my daughter, to Luna Bahabek. To Lu- her name is Luna Bahabek means I love you in, in Arabic. And then my right. last book, Parasitic Ma- Mind, it's to Lior Bahabek. Lior is my son. Uh, right. And I say, I, I love you to him. And then my family always jokes. They say, well, what's, who are you going to dedicate the next book to now that you've covered everybody in the family? Right. And okay. in, your, in your case, uh, you dedicated the book to some folks in Addis Ababa in Ethiopia who made the greatest coffee in the world or something. Tell us that story. There's a gold nugget there. Please tell us why you did that. Yeah, you know, this was back in 2010. And uh, and this is actually, interestingly enough, the way I sometimes start talking about when I'm interviewed. This is how I begin the conversation because, because I was sitting there at Ras Hotel, which happens to be the origin, they say, of Rastafari. 
Ah, Actually, right, nice. Yeah, that's the hotel in Addis Ababa, uh, in downtown Addis Ababa. And I was sitting there uh, among the smog, and I was thinking about the I was thinking about the idea of nationalism. And then I thought, I just thought, well, you know, couldn't there be some some something that which is completely opposite of uh, nationalism? And this brings me back to the beginning of our conversation. And I thought maybe there could be something called negative nationalism. And then I just googled it. And then it just, bam! And then there was the word negative nationalism. It was a subtitle in an essay. And you already know it. I've already explained it. Of course, it. of course. Told it. This, is a, this is very, you know, uh, a very, very silly thing to do. But anyway, it was a, an essay by George Orwell, of course, by the name of Notes on Nationalism. And then, and then I thought, well, this is very interesting. So that's actually the, the start of my book. When I when I read this when I read this essay and I and I came across negative nationalism and also the the um, the uh, even more interesting even more interesting concept of transfer of nationalism exported nationalism. But what I didn't mention before at the beginning of our conversation was that I tried to combine these two uh, these two types of nationalism, namely negative nationalism and transfer of nationalism into my concept which is a masochistic nationalism namely a kind of a kind of completely fictitious self-hatred because i mean because this this masochistic nationalistic attitude only exists in 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 uh, in uh, uh, societies in the west societies which are by and large you know very very prosperous and, and, and uh, do not have any real problems. So it's a fictitious attitude whereby you, you, you hate your, your own country just like you watch a horror movie and have some popcorn, you know. It is not based on real struggle. It's not based on real famines or hardship because we all know that people who, who live in, under circumstances where, which are, you know, really uh, uh, troublesome, they don't walk about boasting about it. Of course they don't do. So the whole... The whole uh, Self-hating attitude is a is a characteristic among a certain kind of privileged uh, middle-class intellectuals, left-leaning middle-class intellectuals, who somehow feel ashamed or somehow find it uh, unappealing to be privileged, and so they find this kind of kind of a strange way to get out of their sense of shame of being privileged by by downplaying or abusing their own their own uh, fortunes uh, in this manner. And, and I, again, I'd like to bring back to, to, to bring back to um, George Orwell because he he in this notes on nationalism he he, he refers to the, the British intellectuals. He says, uh, if I don't mis- if I'm not mistaken, he says something like this. This was about he referred to the war, Second World War. He says that uh, of course the British intellectuals they didn't want the Na- they didn't wish the Nazis to win the war. Uh, and that he said, continues. Still, they could not help getting a certain kick when they saw the British Air Force were shot down over right. Berlin and Dresden. They couldn't help getting a certain kick of right. the British soldiers being abused and killed. You know, and and I think this idea of getting a certain kick is very interesting because uh, because uh, I think it, it has to do with a kind of masochistic. You enter a game, it's right. not real. It's just like just like a, a masochistic, your sexual idea of masochism. You enter a game and you're abused by the sadist and you love it. You, you, you know, it makes you aroused and, and, sure. and deeply satisfied, etc. And, you know, it, it, it fuels your, I don't know. But it's, it's a kind of, 
the, the masochistic nationalism, in my interpretation, is a kind of uh, the sexual masochism writ large as a collectivist sentiment in an entire culture or an entire state where people, I think, and I think Sweden is a very good case in point here, where people are walking about, not people, but, but you know, the, the um, left-wing elites and the media, they are walking about harassing their own culture, even though there's nothing behind it, you know, it's right. just like a pastime activity. And, and, um, well, just yesterday, uh, just to, yeah. to, to strengthen uh, the, the, the thesis of your book, uh, yeah. yesterday I weighed in on social media because I saw a... A New York Times uh, editorial board member uh, who had yeah. posted a tweet. She's a noble person of color who had posted a tweet saying that she was in Long Island and she was very, very traumatized and disgusted because she saw these really obnoxious, big U.S. flags and that, that had caused her great concern. And so... I mean, I think that's a perfect manifestation of your masochistic yeah. nationalism because when when it becomes something triggering to have your own country's flag flying proudly and that's yeah. something that causes you great angst, we've entered yes. the singularity point of masochistic nationalism, no? <laughs> that's, you, I couldn't put it better than that. And, and You know, it's, it's a singularity point of, yeah, that's actually what it's about. And then... You know, I, then I need to tell you a story because when I was when I was when I was starting writing this book, me and my my wife we went to Istanbul, and I tried to persuade her, and she's a bit hard hard. She works for the United Nations, so she's not so easily convinced about about my ideas generally. But we were sitting there in a boat, and I tried to to, to explain to her, you know, what this masochistic idea is about, and then suddenly I saw a Swedish a big flagship sitting there in the harbor in Istanbul. I don't know, they were, maybe they, they, they were passing through, etc. And then I pointed at the ship, and I said, there you go, that's actually what I mean. She said, what do you mean? Do you see the flag on the ship, I said? <laughs> do you see the flag? And she said, no, well, that's my explanation, because there was actually a flag on that flagship, and it was so small, it was maybe, you know, 50 times 50 centimeters. It was wow. the smallest flag you could imagine. And, this should be, and then I, I, I pointed, and eventually she saw it, and then, then I told it. You know, that's what I mean. That's a masochistic nationalism. Why on earth? I mean, the size of that flag is so small. It has to, you know, they must have thought, because we are Swedes, and, we, you know, we don't want to flag our pride. So we must have thought a lot about that. And eventually they decided to make it so small that nobody would notice it. Amazing. I mean, so the size, yeah, yeah, sorry. And, yeah, and now the, the self-loathing, can manifest itself at different, if you like, units of analysis. So it could be at the at the societal level or at the national yes. level. I hate yes. myself because I'm American. I'm, I'm evil. Yes. I'm a Westerner. It yes. could be at the skin color level. I am yes. horrible. I am a white person. It could be yes. at the uh, sexual preference level. I am yes. a disgusting heterosexual, right? Yes. No, noble, yes. noble people are more sexually fluid. Only bigots yes. would prefer. So, for example, I put out a, a apology tweet a few years ago where I apologized for my inherent transphobia because by marrying my wife, I was implicitly presuming that I wanted to mate with someone who was a woman and had a vagina 
because I didn't realize that women come in many forms. Some women have nine inch penises. And so I was being transphobic. And so despite the fact that I now created now several children with this woman, I do apologize for my transphobia. But so in other words, the orgiastic, masochistic self-loathing is not just at the national level, as you describe in your book. It can be broken down into many other areas of self-loathing, correct? Yes, that's very true. But I, I, God, I, 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 I need to tell you, I think your your satire is too sophisticated for a lot of the people you, you criticize. You know, that's why I don't get cancelled. That's why I don't get cancelled. But I, I, th- I think that's that's like by definition, if, if they would understand what you say, they wouldn't be so silly. You know, so it's it's it makes perfect sense. It's, and, and I'm struggling with the thing, that thing too. You know, sometimes you, you're very sarcastic, and the precisely the people you're 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 mocking, they don't understand it, which is sometimes very nice. Otherwise, they would kill you for it. Because I I fly under the radar because people always. Yes, I often get, how come you could survive? How come you don't get cancelled? I say, well, first. Uh-huh. Look at this infectious smile. Who could who could who could eradicate this guy? But then I tell them usually that my satire fools all these idiots because I I even in the book in the parasitic mind I list several examples where I fooled major media companies. So one of them which I discuss in the book had put out a article of the top I can't remember how many like the top 10 dumbest things said in 2018 and i had made it at number four or five whatever it was but it was a satirical tweet i was basically arguing national borders are racist uh, only a nazi country would have borders and so they took this put it and said look at how dumb professors are look at this idiot so then i write to, to them i say Oh, by the way, it was satirical. Oops. So then right away they go back and they change it without even putting an edit- editing you know, comment because they felt so embarrassed by it. So that's, I think, one of the ways by which I don't get canceled because my satire fools the idiots. Yeah, under the radar. Yes, yes, under, of, course, of course. Under the radar. God, let, let, me, let me just bring up some, some, something from your book here. Sure. Uh, you know, Get Wilders. You oh, mentioned Get Wilders sure. in your book. And you can think anything you want about Get Wilders, but there is a principle here, namely that that uh, you can say true things and you can lie. You can be what you're saying, or rather, what you're saying can be criminal or it might not be criminal. As I remember, he was referring to the fact that that in in Holland there were some areas where there were a lot of migrants, and, and the, the situation in these areas were were not the best. And and uh, you know he was criticizing the migration policy. And then he was attacked uh, by by politicians. Could you just elaborate a little oh, bit? Oh yes, that? thank that's that's possibly the most shocking thing I saw in your book, and it actually blew my mind. I couldn't read for for like for like fifteen minutes, you know. So can <laughs> right. you please just uh, oh, uh, tell you, me about it? You're you're very kind to ask this. Uh, look, yes. Geert Wilders is is yes, certainly a divisive. The, the politician to many people certainly people on the left and so on because he has a very very direct style of speaking when it comes to well immigration when it comes to immigration from certain countries that don't necessarily share the values of the netherlands and so at one point he had made some statements that caused him to be uh prosecuted and when he was defending himself he basically argued okay well can i bring some uh, experts yes. Yes. to to demonstrate that the veracity of my position, in other words, that that which I said is true, right? And 
and the magistrate and truly a manifestation of grand Orwellian nightmare said, it doesn't matter if what you say is true. So truth is not a defense because if the consequences of you uttering this is that it's hateful or it can marginalize someone, then you're still guilty of it. So when a society cannot even use truth as a defense, it's no. a society that's going to die. So that's the example. And thank you for bringing it up. Yes, yes, that, that was that's, that's a very eloquent explanation of the whole thing. And I thought about it on the on the on the way here to, to our discussion. I thought about it, and I thought maybe you can turn this around to further elaborate and show the the, the, the truly the totalitarian or, or Orwellian, to say the least, implication of, of that example. Namely, if you instead of talking about Kurt Wilders, you talk about someone who is very very sweet, very very PC very, very kind and, and tolerant, you know, according to all of these uh, parameters, according to the multicultural entourage. And then you would, you, would, you would come up with something completely opposite. Namely, you could say that if that person says something, it doesn't really matter whether it is true or not. It will always be legal. It, was, it will <laughs> always be fostered. Yeah. You know, uh, you can you can you can be completely you can be very provocative and say that even if this person would would rape a couple of women or or put put a hundred cars on fire or do whatever they want, it would still be legal, because the person who is doing this is a nice guy. Exactly. See, well, they, you see, they, isn't that a way to just turn the whole thing around? Absolutely. And then you, just, and then you elaborate with the same with the same bizarre tools, and then you come up with the same logic from the other end, namely, it will always be legal, you 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 can be complete nihilist, you can put the dagger in Gatsad and you're on Aramson or, or in a hundred people, well, it's fine. Well, listen, you're they, they, you're there is an exact example of that that I discuss in the book. Uh, yeah. it's, it's a story that had happened to uh, Sam Harris, where yes. he, he is... Uh, having a discussion with the, at the time, I think the bioethicist serving on uh, President Obama's uh, advisory board or whatever. And uh, she was very much of a, uh, I think it was a she, uh, a very much of a cultural relativist, right? Who, who are we to judge other cultures? And so uh, Sam had basically said to her, I'm, I'm paraphrasing, the exact quote is in, is in the book. He says something yes. like, so let's suppose I told you there was a society whereby they say every fourth child, we have to gouge their eyes so that they can walk in darkness forevermore. Would you condemn that? And she said, well, not necessarily, because it depends if that's their cultural or religious values. So when a human being, never mind a bioethicist, when a human being does not have the internal moral compass to or calculus to say, no, you could never gouge out the eyes of an innocent child under any circumstance. If she doesn't have the capacity to enunciate that very natural deontological position, it shows you what a idea pathogen cultural relativism is because it basically negates our instinct to recognize what is right or wrong. And this is why, by the way, Joran, I talk about the difference between deontological ethics and consequentialist ethics. And again, yes. I argue that it is wrong to pit them against each other. Sometimes consequentialism works. And the, the example I use in a humorous manner, but it's true. I say, look, if you want to have a long marriage, 
when your spouse says, do I look fat in those jeans? Then quickly put on your consequentialist hat and say, of course you don't. You're gorgeous. Because yeah. in this case, I am lying, but I'm lying to protect the sanctity of our union. I'm lying so that I can protect your emotions. On the other hand, when I am pursuing truth, I only put on my deontological hat. I never equivocate truth to protect your feelings. No, that's very true. That's very, very true. No, I think the, the, the cultural relativism and postmodernity multiculturalism is one big bag of very dangerous ideas. And it, it, it leads to laziness, it leads to arrogance and, and all of these things. But one thing I, I'd like to, to mention here is that, yes, they keep saying that, oh, you know, they have their ideas, they have their convictions. And my question is, who? You say they have their ideas. Well, that's a bloody stereotype, isn't it? It's like saying that people who live in a certain certain country, well, maybe, just maybe because they are escaping from this country, they are fleeing to Canada, to, 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 to uh, Germany, to Sweden, maybe there are inner tensions in these countries. Right. And it's like, no, they didn't understand it. Well, I can tell you, of course there are inner tensions. That's why they, they try to run away. And so the inner tensions are, are possibly between the elites and the people. Well, you can also say that there might be tensions between between a medical doctor who was who are trying to to to, to what do you say gorge the eyes out of young children and the children who might would like to 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 keep their eyes to to be happy yeah and so it's like one that this is my my constant attack against the cultural relativists it's like saying because what they are actually talking about when they say that they have their cultures they are talking about the elites they are talking about people in power in these cultures, exactly. you know, in these religions, and whereas they seem to leave the the, the the truly destitute, truly poor people in jail in China, for instance, or 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 children or women, for that matter, sure. in, in certain certain religions, uh, you know, they leave them completely uh, to their destiny. So I think there is a very strange arrogance and very strange upper class arrogance among among cultural relativists. They seem to be very happy to to bond. With, with the elites in poor countries, you know, and then, yeah. then they are claiming to be tolerant and understanding yeah. and open-minded, etc. I think it's, 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 a, it's a terrible, terrible, just, just complete nonsense. And, and, and when, you, when you say this, when I say this to my students, when I talk about, talk about uh, cultural relativism and, and I bring up this elitist, uh, you know, implications in cultural relativism, they just look at me. And I just tell them, you need to think about this. Right. When we say they have their customs, are you talking about people in jail? In Iran, for instance? No, you never talk about... This is not what you mean when you talk about they. You talk about the mullahs. Yeah, right, exactly. And then, and then the mullahs, what, what do you think the mullahs, what do you think, what do you think the, the ruling elites in dictatorships, what do you think they say when they listen to cultural relativists in the West? They are so happy they, they can't stop laughing. Well, listen, I, I, I get access to these positions because as a... Given that Arabic is my mother tongue, Yes. I can converse with people in Arabic when they don't necessarily know who I am or my... I mean, now it's becoming a bit right. more difficult to, to fly under the radar. But yes. uh, historically, as I was you know, developing as a, as a young adult and so on, I would yes. get access to the things that folks would say 
that they wouldn't be saying to the Westerner, right? No, and just... and and the typical position, and and this might sound a bit crass, the typical position that I would often hear from people who come from my neck of the woods in the Middle East is that yeah. they're astonished at. Uh, there's kind of a vulgar term in Arabic. It's like they are mounting the West, mounting in a sexual way, right? Is that yes. they, they can't believe how weak uh, the West is in using its system. They're using those systems to mount the West. It's it's very yes. it's kind of difficult to to translate into English. I, I, I understand exactly. Yeah. Yeah. Yes. Yes. Uh, and this is again, again part of part of my book. You know, the masochistic attitude, and then. And then, uh, and then people are coming from. I mean, speak up. We can say multiculturalism behind the lines. It's about. It's mostly about about Islam, isn't it? Yeah. So it's not about. It's not about Hindus. It's not about Vietnamese people. It's that. That's the the thing we often talk about. And, and then, the funny thing is that you see these academics or Westerners by and large who are, you know, filled with with a sense of uh, tolerance and humbleness, etc. And then you have. Not all of them, of course, but but a fair amount of Muslims and Islamists certainly who just uh, walk in, and they are they are not filled with postmodernity. They are filled with the opposite. They are yeah. filled with a tremendously you know self-esteem bordering on on, on a, a diagnosis. And then you imagine the the, the uh, who's supposed to win? Who will win this battle? I don't know. I mean, there is a this is a battle between a kind of civilized, perversely civilized attitude versus a. Uh, very rough, very solid, very uh, outspoken, self-assured yeah. attitude. Yeah. And the class class here is extremely bizarre because it's not like a it's not like a, a, a conflict between equals. It's like very strange, very bizarre. And again, I'd like to bring up this the funny thing which goes on here, namely the the um, the claw you might say, as I mentioned before, behind this self-humiliation, namely a kind of some maybe some kind of subconscious belief in the superiority of your culture because right. you are progressing, you're self-critical, you, you always want to excel, you're never satisfied, you always say, this is not good enough, this is not good enough. And then you're confronted with people who keep saying, we are proud, everything is fantastic, and, and who are happy, it seems, to sit, just sit down and take it easy and have a coffee for five hours, yeah. which yeah. is, of course, not a recipe for, for success. It's not a recipe for GDP growth. It's like the opposite. And yet these people are... The, the, the poor people, the people who are actually the, the destitute, they are furious. And we who are, if, if you allow this stereotype, we and them, we who are, who are um, superior in many ways, you know, as societies, we are filled with this kind of self-regulation that maybe it makes sense somehow, but it, it's very intricate, I would say. It's, it's a perverse uh, dance. It's a perverse dance, definitely. Very perverse dance. And the, the, the conflicts are like so bizarre and... and, and uh, the intellectual puzzle is like, I have no clue how to solve it. Joran, last question on masochistic nationalism, your latest book. And then I yes. want to spend the next few minutes talking about stuff in sociology uh, yes. in general. Yes. Uh, yes. So in, in the last chapter of my book, I, I try to leave off the, 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 the journey with some hope, with a call to action, with because, you know, there's no point in diagnosing the disease, but you go see your physician and he says, you've got disease X. And then you say, okay, doc, so what do we do? He goes, oh, I don't care. I don't know. I'm just going to tell you that you have this. So it was very important for me to offer a set of prescriptions or, 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 or calls to action. So yes. in your book, and forgive me because I haven't gotten that far yet, 
no. you, you provide this excellent sort of diagnosis of some of these issues. Is yes. there a light at the end of the tunnel? Is there optimism? Yes. Is there somehow to get out of this or you, you didn't get into that? Uh, yes, actually, my 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 editor Routledge, she said, you know, this is a, this is a grim story. It's 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 good, but you need to have some way out of this. You need to have a light at the end of the tunnel, and the light at the end of of the tunnel is actually liberalism. Funnily enough, it's, it's true liberal liberalism, classical liberalism. Yes. Yes. yes, it's not. It's not. Uh, sorry, Hillary. It's not your kind of liberalism. <laughs> it's true liberalism, right. because I what I what I'm do what I'm trying to do is throughout the book. I'm trying to say that look, there is a there is an earring. There is a strange similarity between the uh, what we refer to as a classic classic nationalist and what I call a masochistic nationalist, namely a nationalist overseas. They say the same thing. The only difference is geographic. One is hailing his own country. The other one is hailing the, the left wing is the multiculturalist. They are hailing countries overseas. Watch it. You're, you're, yeah, be careful with your uh, microphone. It's making static. Yeah, okay, that's good. Oh, okay, okay, yeah, yes. So they are basically doing the same thing, you know. And 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 what is very important here is to 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 say that neither of these two uh, neither of these two nationalists are interested in principles. Right. They talk about their own culture, their own nation, you know, beaming with righteousness and pessimism and aggressiveness. And we can do things you are not allowed to do. Right. But then the multiculturalists, they say something which seems to me to be the opposite and yet the same. They can do things to us. We can't do anything to them. Right. So there are. So they are not. They, they have no political principles. They are basically both of them are saying we can do anything we want and you should shut up. Right. Because you, you because you're not good enough, you know. So so from 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 different geographical settings, they are saying the same thing. That's a very important point. So I'm fusing these two, saying this is like two manifestations of a nationalist attitude. Yeah, the classic and the masochistic manifestation of nationalism. And so my way out of this is a position whereby, whereby you actually stick to a political principle, namely saying we have a right to be engaged and be proud and happy with our own nation, you know, without, you know, of course, not being excessive about it, but we have a right to be proud about our culture. And they also have a right to be proud about their culture, you know. And it's like we assign the rights to be happy and to be proud and to, 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 flag, to wave our flags, and we think this is a universal right. And, and just to bring on to, 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 to another chapter in my book, it's about art. If you say that you're, you're in favor of freedom of the arts, you cannot say, like some nationalists would say, we like nationalist art, we, we like art favoring the white guy, you know, or favoring the West. But, but, but multicultural art or art idealizing, art idealizing the Muslim world, for instance, is bad. You can't say that. You need to stick to a principle. And, and you know, then you can turn the whole thing around and say, well, Muhammad cartoons should be fine. You can't criticize it, you know. That's the other, other side of it. Right. You need to have a principle. If you, say that, if you say that freedom of the arts is good, you need, to, you need to say that as a principle. You need to be completely disinterested of the local setting. Right. Because that, that, if, you, if you think the local setting is important, then you're just a nationalist. And but, you think that we can say things that you're not allowed to say these things. And then I think the liberal attitude... Is, is quite is the, the somehow the way out of this because a liberal would not be interested in the ge geography here. A liberal would say that, well, like John Stuart Mill or other ones, or I guess you or me, we would say that, well, if you stick to a rule, you need to 
you need to adhere to this rule universally. Right. So that's my, my, you know, very briefly. Well, so let me let me summarize what you just said. I mean, it's exactly what I said earlier when I drew the distinction between deontological ethics, absolute principles and consequentialist. So you're basically saying be consistent in the application of deontological ethics. And I think one thing that maybe you didn't mention here, but maybe you mentioned in the book, uh, because some people might not know what classical liberalism is. Uh, one of the things to get out of the darkness is that the most fundamental unit that either defines your pride or shame is the individual. It's individual dignity, right? So before Joran is white or Swedish, he is Joran. And therefore, yes. I judge the merits and flaws of Joran based on that. The fact that he's Swedish is part of his identity and part of the trajectory yes. of his history, but it is yes. it is subsumed or it is superseded by the yes. unique constellation of who Yoran is. So I am Gad Sad first before Lebanese or Jewish or Middle Eastern. And so yeah. if people are able to truly adhere to this principle, which is foundational to classical liberalism, I think there is a way out of all this collectivist bullshit. I think that's exactly the way out of this collectivist bullshit, to focus the individual, because both the nationalist and, and in my view, the masochistic nationalists, they only focus the collectivist idea and, and, and the culture. And I mean, you can listen to multiculturalists for, for days, right. and they still would not mention the individual. They, 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 the extent of their collectivism is mind-boggling. It's worse than a communist. It's right. worse than a Stalinist, you know? <laughs> It's exactly. actually, if you, if you want to pick the most collectivist, collectivist ideology out there, it's actually multiculturalism, I think. Right. Yes, and people, people, people would, 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 wouldn't think that as a first intuition. So it, in a sense, what you're saying is quite uh, shocking to most people, right? Yeah. yeah. Yes, yes, yes. But please, uh, let's continue to, with, uh, with uh, what you were about to say. Okay, so um, it, yeah. do we ha- can we do about another 10 minutes, you think? Sure. All right, let's do I'm it. Yours. As long as you want, I, I really enjoy this conversation. Oh, thank you. Likewise, you're on. Uh, yeah. So yeah. two things I want to mention. First, uh, so in the in the parasitic mind, I have a section where I talk about the distribution of professors in terms of their political affiliation. Are they? Uh, this is in the context of the U.S. and there's also similar studies in Canada, but I'm sure there are similar studies yeah. in Sweden. Uh, yes. You know, are you? So let's do the. American context, are you a registered Democrat or a registered Republican as a professor? And it turns out that exactly like many of us have been warning, the the, the, the academy is just unbelievably lopsided towards one political uh, group, the Democrats. Yes. And yes. that ratio, that lopsided ratio varies as a function of which discipline. So economics yeah. might be less lopsided than, and now I'm going to come to sociology. So the first thing that I want to talk about is a study that, so this is Langbert 2018. He did a fantastic yes. study looking at a whole bunch of disciplines. Sociology, let me just get the right number. Sociology faculty members, the ratio, now sit down for this one, 43.8 to 1. Mm-hmm. Right. So, I mean, think, think, let's contextualize it. Typically in, in, in science, if you have something called an odds ratio of 1.2 to 1, meaning 20% more, 1.2 to 1, that's a usually, that's, that's a powerful, statistically significant effect. 2 to 1 is huge. 3 to 1 yeah. is out of this world. 43, 43.8 to 1. So, 44. 44, 44 to 1. So, how... Yeah. 
how could you ever have sociology students understanding the full complexity of a phenomenon when the people who are entrusted with teaching our young minds are completely monopolistically from one group? And I suspect it's the same in Sweden, correct? It's the same in Sweden. And, and uh, interestingly enough, I, I was talking to some people today and I said, I would like to make a study about this the within the social sciences the the extent of the left-wing or you would say democratic uh, tendency to put it mildly in the social sciences in Sweden because it is mind-boggling you can just I mean people have all kinds of ideas but I, I wrote an article about um, two, two, actually two months ago or something where I said okay but let, let's not be anecdotal about this let's, yes. let's just count let's just check the books <laughs> Because I've I've been in this I've been in this, in this bullshit for 20 years. Let's just go through the books in the social sciences. Let's focus anthropology, social work, and sociology to have a look, you know, in the lion's den, and then see if you if you find one book out of a thousand which is not completely saturated, permeated with with identity politics, gender politics, uh, you know, and all of it. Uh, and so. Um, um, in Sweden, in Sweden, it seems to me that, that, that the social sciences is one big voting factory for the left. Exactly. That's what's happening. Yeah. And, and an interesting thing here is that, that, that the universities, I mean, if you've read the history of, of the university, you know that the university once came about to create some kind of, a, well, safe space, if you know what I mean. Safe space where people actually could, could, could argue freely, a space which was not contaminated by political ideas and the upper class and the establishment, where people could be clever, you know, and, and have a scientific mind and all ideas were fine. And, and I think what we're witnessing now is some kind of tragedy because it seems like the university is like slowly sliding back to something we have prior to the 18th century right it's so well, true that's what happened so are you are you running that study is it is it did you get a green light or do you think you're gonna do it no but i, I will do it i i will actually do this I, i'm thinking about it. i'm just i'm just finishing a book which might also be of interest to you I'm, I'm finishing or writing on a book which is about a comparison between sweden in the 2020s and poland in the 1950s okay. in terms of in terms of the the uh if you know, if you know, Czesław uh, Miłosz, he wrote a book called uh, the the, um, the uh, captured mind, the captive mind. It's about the in, the uh, the dissidents and the and also the um, the uh, opportunists in in Warsaw and in Poland in the 1950s, and the way they justified their you know lack of independence and the way they collaborated with the communist regime, and and, and also interestingly enough, the way they attacked the way they abused and and dealt with dissidents and now i see sweden in the 2020s i see these these ideas are coming back you know we have sweden is slowly slowly moving towards uh, i mean you should you shouldn't exaggerate it, but i think sweden is slowly moving towards a kind of dictatorship because we have an elite uh, and, and uh, dealing with people like myself and a lot of other people who just try to be scientific and the way we are being dealt with it does not seem to me to be a democratic way of dealing with people. But anyway, I'm trying to. My next book will will will. I'm trying to to write the next book about about what you just talked about. Interesting. So, so that's, uh, yeah. Just uh, one one point of optimism coming out of Sweden. I was contacted yeah. by some uh, Swedish. Uh, 
scholars and scientists. I think they run. Is it called Academic Watch or something like that? I can't remember. Yes, they, I know. You know, yes. you know them. Okay, and they they wanted me to write a uh, an invited piece for them. And so there are some folks in Sweden, yourself, of course, and others that are trying to push back against the lunacy. Okay, last set of questions that relate to sociology. So yes. Auguste Comte. Uh, many yeah. years ago uh, had written uh, this treatise on the hierarchy of the sciences and in his view sociology was at the apex of the sciences oh, because yeah, he yeah. argued then that it's a lot easier to study natural phenomena you know in the in the natural sciences to study the behavior yeah. of an atom or a molecule than it is to study something as complex as human beings and certainly as you know societies and, yes. and in a sense, he's, he's correct. So you can certainly argue that sociology should be an important you know, scientific discipline in line with any other discipline. And yet yes. I've argued that because sociology is so prone to being parasitized by activist ideas, it yes. actually ends up being a trash science, not because epistemology, epistemologically speaking, it's not an actual science, but because oh. it simply hasn't been inoculated against all the parasitic nonsense. So oh. remember what I just said there, yes. which then I... leads me to the next part, and then you'll you'll answer in any way you want. So yeah. of course, in in my own field, scientific field, what I've done in pioneering the field of evolutionary consumption is I've taken yes, evolutionary yes. biology and evolutionary psychology and I apply yes. it to study human behavior in general and consumer behavior in particular. And so yes. many years ago when I was writing my first book, I wanted to look at other disciplines that have had infusions of Darwinian thinking. And so yes. I looked at sociology and I only found a few books. Here's one. This is called... Right. Crisis in Sociology, The Need for Darwin. And there are several wow. other books written by sociologists where they argue, yeah. how could you be studying sociological phenomena without ever recognizing the evolutionary mechanisms that generate behavior? And so yeah. having said all that, where do you, I understand you're not an evolutionist, but how do you view this oh. issue of how do we bring back sociology from the brinks of stupidity back to the sciences oh. where it belongs god this is a billion billion dollar question <laughs> yeah. but but I, but I need to start with a very sad uh, somehow sad recognition if sociology is, is a trash science and then, then I, I fear i might be a trash science oh no no i i didn't mean to be but, insulting <laughs> no but i some somehow sometimes i feel a little bit like the odd man out that's right. that's true if i'm if if there are two two like myself in 88, 88 uh, sociologists, that's a pretty hard uh, uphill battle. Yeah. But, uh, but you know, I think the problem with sociology is that, that in terms of, you know, the, the, the fact that it's been hijacked by, 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 by parasitic ideas, and, and I would say identity politics, is that the problem is, is it's so easy. If you take a science like, uh, a field like economics or a field like, I mean, natural sciences and chemistry, it's much harder yeah. for a post, for, you know, if, you, if you want to interpret mass like like postmodernity you can't i mean they try but it's not as easy but but sociology is like uh, it's like uh, it's very easy to to pervert sociology it's very easy to i think it's very easy to 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 cover up sociology or cover up ideological uh, manipulation as sociology i think it's extremely yeah. easy and 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 it also that it makes it even more easy because 
because then you 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 can also pretend to be not only a scientist but also an activist and right. that appeals to a lot of students because they think you know many of them i think maybe not the the, the sharpest knives sharpest knives in the in, in the in the in the in the in the drawer but many students i think they think maybe science or sociology is a little bit boring a little bit abstract but then if you add a few drops of activism into it and which means you make it into an ideology you make exactly. it into you know, you turn students into activists and, and to uh, to change the world, whatever it is, which means you make it less scientific. Then they are happy because they think they have a mission, you know. Very true. And I think this this is, this is spreading a lot, as opposed to if you would if you would engage in maybe a little bit harder social sciences like like uh, economics or or management, you know, maybe it's not exactly. as easy. So well, I think that, 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 yeah. Sorry. So let me let me let me build on that. So I'm yeah. often asked what. How do I explain the fact that some disciplines are more parasitized than others? So to, to yeah. build on what you said. Yes. And, and my answer actually using exactly the disciplines that you said. So I'm housed in a business school. Well, it's very difficult to build a mathematical model of consumer choice using postmodernism because your model is either going to work or not. If I'm, if I'm, if I'm, if I'm being paid a lot of money by a company to help them better understand consumer behavior, I can't yeah. be spewing nonsense because uh, there is a thing called reality that will serve as a feedback loop to my stupidity. If you're building an engine, I'm sorry? No, no, they won't buy it. Exactly, and if, it. If, if I'm an engineer and I'm building a bridge, I can't use postmodernist physics to build the bridge. So engineering, business school are places yeah. that are so coupled to reality that in a sense, epistemologically you have an inoculation against the nonsense sociology yeah. doesn't have that inoculation and so the craziness can go completely wild correct you know this is this could be the start of a completely new new discussion this is extremely interesting and i think you're completely right and and it's i mean you could elaborate further on this you could say that well the more intellectual the more the more the more brainy the more abstract science the more likely it is to be attacked or and basically killed by activists on the left, right? You know? and, and and then then people might say, oh, you know, you're, that's an that's an anti-intellectual approach because you're against sociology and you're in favor of, of management and you're in favor of, of, of uh, business economics, etc., which is supposed to be lower, you know, not not as pure, not as not as intellectual. Yeah. It's applied. It's applied, yes. Yeah. But then you could say, though, well, applied science, there is there is something great about it. It cannot be not as easily be be fooled and manipulated and, 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 and killed off by, by, by silly parasitic ideas from the left. And I can, I, I, I'm, no, go, no, I'm no, going no, to give no, you no. a test of exactly what you just said. So yeah, yes. when, I, when, I, when I first began to take my show, so to speak, to yeah. Darwinize the business school, and I would yeah. be speaking to two groups of people. It would be either academics or yes. it would be practitioners, right? Yes. And I noticed... Well, within the academics, if they were natural science-minded, then they would love what I'm doing. But if they were in the social sciences, they'd be like, what? What's this biology stuff? What are you talking about? You're a heretic. Yes. But the yes. practitioners, right? So if I give a talk in front of a bunch of high-powered executives about how to maximally design advertising messages that are yes. in line with our evolutionary instincts, well, the yes. advertisers say, yeah, that gorgeous. That makes perfect sense. Yes. You're helping us, yes. the, right? It was the academics that exhibited the greatest resistance because yes. they were wedded 
to an ideology that seemed contrary to what I was saying. So, for example, if they were social constructivists, then they didn't like biology and therefore I was a heretic that needed to be burned at the stake. But the practitioner, the business person, doesn't give a damn about ideology. Can you help me develop a better advertising message? Yes, Yes. I want to speak to you. No, get out of my room. And so I had that feedback when I went to academia versus practitioners. Which is very interesting. I, I, it seems as if we are two two academics, and we seem to be a little bit critical towards academia, in a sense. And and and, and I, I, I I I'm surprised at the fact that I've. Uh, I'm not saying I think academia is is a terrible engagement, terrible occupation, but there are certainly are a lot of problems with this lofty, you know, ivory tower intellectualism. Because because to me, uh, the pro- and the problem is ideology. The problem is truly a kind of saturation with, with, with ideology. And, and just, just briefly, I thought about that. I thought about the same thing as you were talk, as you're talking about now a little while ago. And, and, uh, and for instance, if you, if you build cars, Mercedes cars, and then, and then you produce them and then you, somebody wants to take a drive and he turns the ignition key and nothing happens. He's not going to buy the car. And then you say, well, I can reduce the price. No, it doesn't work. Thank you. Bye-bye. I'm going somewhere else. But then I was working, I've been working for many years at departments of social work. And sadly, uh, no names mentioned, but sadly, it is my, my impression that a lot of these social workers, they are, we fuel them with ideas and these ideas do not work. So they come out to societies and I've heard many stories about this. They come out and they are full of enthusiasm and then they are supposed to work with uh, Clients and, and uh, bureaucracies to help unemployed people, you know, all kinds of, all kinds of important stuff. And then there is a complete imminent crash between the practitioners out there in the, you know, the bureaucracies, the social agencies, etc., and the enthusiastic young, mostly female social workers with a degree. And there is no connection whatsoever between the two. No connection. And, and by and the so, way, when, when those so, policies fail, they don't yeah. take the opportunity to revise their positions. It no, must no, no. be because you didn't apply the policies properly. So it's like socialism has and communism has failed in a hundred different places. That doesn't prove that socialism and communism is a wrong system. It simply no. proves that you didn't apply true socialism. If yes. only you apply true Islam, then we would all be living in a utopia. Exactly. So, so just to get back to the comparison between a Mercedes and these social workers, the social workers, they can study and they can they can write all kinds of nonsense in their exams and they get a pass because they say the right things ideologically, but not scientifically, but ideologically. And then they get the degree and then they go out and then they, they wreak havoc. And the, 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 their their impact on, on society and on the social, social agencies and um, unemployment agencies they are at best nothing, but but mostly purely negative. So that's like a Mercedes, and you turn the ignition key, nothing happens. But this charade can go on indefinitely, decade after decade after decade. We're pumping out tens and hundreds of thousands of young, young, keen, engaged social workers, and they, 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 what they are doing is detrimental to society. You know, and yet we can do it because no, no one is willing to check it. Like you can check a Mercedes. Okay, it doesn't work. You need to build another car. But, but, but so what, when they come out to, to, to an unemployment agency, the, the problem is never at the is problem is never on the side of the academics, the social workers, you know, the students. The problem is always among the practitioners, the, the people who actually 
work with people who are unemployed and who, who might have some practical knowledge about it. And again, it seems like I'm in, uh, I have an intellect uh, an anti-intellectual agenda here. So do you. But but I think it, it makes perfect sense because I think there is a there is and this also goes back to the entire aloofness of academia yeah. these days. Where I would say, I mean, I can say it now because I'm, I'm I think I'm going to write a write at least a paper about it. I think that maybe you could. To be a little bit provocative, I think you could you could uh, ask nine out of ten social uh, people, in, uh, students engaged in social sciences, to go home, and also nine out of ten academics in the social sciences. Yeah. Maybe you should go home. You should find another job because what you're doing makes no sense. It has no relation to the real world. And, uh, Indeed. And, uh, so, so that's uh, that's uh, rather pessimistic, but I. I'm, I'm, I think these are very important issues, and I fully agree with what you said before about the, you know the, the, the conflict between the intellectuals and the real world. It's well, a huge, huge problem. Indeed, uh, I'm uh, very thankful that uh, folks like you exist. There aren't too many people who are pushing. Like, it, it, it's 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 not that we are anti-intellectualism. It's actually I would not to toot our own horn. It's precisely because we value intellectualism so much that we despise the faux intellectualism that is being spread on campuses. And so for that, I thank you. There are too few people who put their necks out on the line in academia to fight. You're certainly one of the few who does it. And. Uh, and you're one of them too, Gerd. And I'm very, very happy to be here. And, and thanks for a great conversation. Uh, it was great. amazing. I look forward to following your work and making sure that you keep causing all sorts of headaches to people who deserve <laughs> to have headaches. So thank you so much, Jorn. Stay on the line. We'll say our yeah. official goodbyes. Uh, thank you so much yes. for coming on. And I look forward to keeping in touch with you. Cheers. Thank, thanks, God. Thanks a lot. Cheers. Thank you. Jackie.